Hey everybody, welcome back to Green Malkin Lane. Uh, I'm your host, Chad Anderson. Green Malkin Lane is the podcast where queer friends gather to review and discuss uh, the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Queer friends and allies, obviously. Uh, last week in uh, Where Walks the Juggernaut, the X-Men faced the powerful threat of Juggernaut, who was the stepbrother of Charles Xavier, a foe who basically can't be hurt and who is also immune to telepathy as long as he's wearing his, uh, his big old helmet. Uh, with the mentally coerced help of the Human Torch, uh, Professor X was able to manipulate his students into getting Juggernaut's helmet off, and then he defeated him with a telepathic blast. Uh, at the end of the comics, Professor X mind wipes the Human Torch for no seeming reason, uh, and then all four of the male students uh, were injured and in the infirmary, with Jean, of course, acting as their nurse because it's the 1960s. Uh, welcome back to uh, episode 14 today, where we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 14 called Among Us Stalk the Sentinels. Uh, I'm your host, Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, we are uh, joined by my co-host, Heather, and by some of my favorite podcasters, Justin and Alicia from the X-Live podcast. Uh, I'll give you guys each the chance to uh, introduce yourselves, let us know your pronouns. And then the question I want to ask today, if you'll take time to answer, is what is something that you grew up believing because of its portrayal in popular culture or in the media that you then had to unlearn as an adult? Uh, we'll understand the relevance of this question as we get into today's, uh, today's review. Uh, so go ahead. Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm Alicia. I use she, her pronouns. And uh, my answer to this question is this idea that I had to like graciously accept advances from men like I should be grateful even if I uh, wasn't interested and that I needed to be very polite in my response even if I felt that advance to be um, aggressive or just something I wasn't interested in at the time and um, you know as I got older I realized that's not the case and it's interesting how it actually plays into this issue yes <laughs> and all issues of this era. And Jean <laughs> yeah. as her start. Yeah. Uh, hey, everyone. My name is Justin. I use he, him pronouns. And my answer for this was in thinking about the hero-villain binary, that, that good guys are always good and they good, do good things, and bad guys are always bad and they do bad things. And really understanding that people are complex and motivations and perspectives really play into why someone does something. and bad guys can become good guys and good guys can become bad guys. And I feel like that's been a, a great evolution through some of the storytelling that I've been reading, especially through comics. Fantastic. And my name is Heather. I use she, her pronouns. And similar to Alicia, the first thing that came to mind was like the idea of consent. Cause a lot of the time growing up in like media portrayals, it like if the guy asked the girl out and she said, no, if he just kept persisting, she was going to say yes. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of that unlearning in a different way because obviously I'm not someone who identifies as male. And so I didn't have to unlearn quite the same kind of thing, but unlearning that that's okay. <laughs> um, the one I'm going to choose to share, although I feel like I could list a thousand because I grew up in a very conservative religious household. 
but a bizarre one because mm-hmm. I grew up gay was learning uh, to believe that gay people were inferior, uh, that they were somehow morally weak or or uh, wrong or even, I mean, terms like abomination were thrown around. So not only did I learn to believe those things about myself, but about other people around me. And then I entered a weird spot in my teen years where I'm like, oh, gay people are great, but me being gay is still really bad. And it took me like a long time to unlearn those messages. Uh, so I, but I feel like I could list a thousand others. Uh, uh, Alicia and Justin, will you guys take a minute to tell us about uh, the Ex-Wife podcast, uh, what it is and what you guys may have coming up? Sure. Yeah. So the Ex-Wife podcast started as one man's elaborate scheme to get his wife into X-Men comics, but now it's working. Uh, Alicia had never read a comic before in her life. And so it was my elaborate plan to introduce the wide world of mutants, X-Men, and the intricate stories that follow and hopefully catch fire and create a nerdy obsession that I think... It worked. It worked. It totally worked. I was like a nerd at heart um, for like novels and book series and movies and Jurassic Park and all of these things, but not so much comics. And now I am deep into the world of comics. And uh, what we're doing now on the show is we're still going back and I'm still learning what uh, Justin refers to as my ex-education. So I'm getting like the history and my you know, key points, but uh, we read the weekly books that come out and talk about them. So look at me, I'm reading comics now. It's so fun. Uh, my husband co-hosted on Gray Malkin in our last recording. Uh, he's not a huge X-Men fan, but he just wanted to try it out. And he told me after reading X-Men 13, he's like, this is the first comic book I've ever read. And I was like, do you remember the comics I wrote that you read when we were dating? And he's like, oh, yeah, except for those. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently they got blanked out completely. Uh, so, no, you guys are doing great work. Uh, it's really rare to see like a husband and wife team doing what you're doing. And it's wonderful to hear, um, uh, I don't know, feminist perspective. I don't know if that's the right phraseology to use, but uh, I, what you guys and what uh, Dylan and Regina are doing on their uh, on their House X podcast as well, uh, both uh, some of my very favorites. So, so honored to have you here. Thanks for joining us today. Yes, thank uh, you so much for having us. We're in, so excited. In preparing for this comic book today, I realized there's so much more to it than just the standard issue. Uh, this is kind of in my in my opinion, maybe the first really substantive X-Men comic book. The others are kind of silly, but this one introduces some really heady themes that have stuck with the mythos for for the rest of uh, continuity uh, to follow. So uh, X-Men 14, we really delve in deep. So let's kind of just begin with uh, our reactions to the cover. What are your thoughts on uh, the cover of uh, X-Men 14? <laughs> it still makes me laugh because like I was saying in the last episode, whenever we were talking about the, co- the cover for this one, the Sentinel looks like an old school DJ. <laughs> like, hey, hey party everyone's people. ready. We're going to get started. Like one of those electronica, like, musician type of thing where he's like getting all hyped up and everything and he just like pushes the key of the keyboard and it starts doing like the sound samples that's what 
Yeah. But he also he also looks a little like Frankenstein's monster. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, I just was like, he I feel like he's supposed to be intimidating, but he just looks like you know, he's dancing. He's like, Yeah, we're starting a dance party. Like, that's what I bowing down to Xavier. (laughs) Yeah. And the the purple gray scheme, it kind of comes across as purple green on the cover, but I mean, it's iconic for the Sentinels, obviously, but when you're first looking like, okay, mm-hmm. I think when you think of robots, you're expecting something not that. Uh, and then that bizarre helmet like that all the Sentinels have. Yeah, and I'm just looking at it now and the hands look oddly human. Yeah, they do. It, it, like, like they come out of the sleeves of his robot arms. It's like, no, but I have human hands now. <laughs> With the yeah. X-Men slowly climbing through the window and Gene Tarzaning in the background. <laughs> like, I just kind of feel like now that I'm looking at it again, it's sort of like the X-Men snuck out and the Sentinel was in on it. And now the Sentinel's like, look over here, Xavier. The kids are sneaking back in the window. <laughs> Those crazy kids. Uh, so this issue, I mean, we're going to jump in, obviously, but this issue had a lot of silly, campy, crazy, but a lot of like really emotionally resonant stuff, too. Uh, so I'm going to kind of guide us through a discussion. Let's see how things go. Feel free to share or interject at any point. Uh, but yeah, I have a lot of feelings about this one. Uh, when we open up on page one, we have some mention to the last issue. So the, the X-Men are starting to get more continuity based. The earlier issues are kind of done in one, but now we're seeing them start to refer back to past adventures, past issues. There's like a little more carryover. Uh, the Juggernaut two issues that preceded was the first kind of continuation we've had. And now we're getting ready to begin a four issue arc. So they're they're totally changing the storytelling style, uh, Stan and Jack are. Uh, when we read the credits, because I love these in the 60s, we get uh, Stan Lee, Doctor of Story, Jack Kirby, Dean of Layout, Jay Gavin, who's really Werner Roth, Master of Art, Vince Coletta, Bachelor of Inking, and then Artie Semek, Tired of Lettering. Uh, <laughs> Artie uh, is always making fun of himself back in the 60s, which makes me very happy. Um, On page one, the X-Men are all recovering from their injuries in various bizarre ways. Uh, (laughs) Let's each take an X-Men and just talk about how they are recovering. Uh, I'll take Iceman, who is very very happily sitting in an ice intensifier, uh, struggling to feel like his old frosty self again, which is adorable and amazing. Yes, agreed. I'm a big fan of... um of Angel and his harness and like the flapping of his wings without actually having to hold himself up to like re-strengthen. So rather than just rest and recover, it's like, oh, well, let's work out our wings, but let's not do it with any weight. So we're just getting mobility happening. That's kind of like what you do with baby birds. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, if you're trying to help them learn how to fly, you kind of just bounce them. So they get used to like flapping their wings. And, That's awesome. Um, so they get used to the idea of their wings are supposed to hold them up. So it's kind of the same sort That's of thing. Cool. Angels, a baby bird. That's fine. <laughs> I just, I love beasts and the fact that he's like, oh, now I'm going to be one of those awful, vulnerable homo sapiens. And he's just wallowing in his self-pity of the fact that now he's he's been reduced to, and, and even he makes the, the mention of no one should should be without you know depriving a mutant of his powers is like forbidding a politician to kiss babies he's really affected by the fact that he can't 
swing by his feet upside down. <laughs> it's on this crutch set. Although there, I think there is a little uh, queer truth to that too. Like when you get to a place where you can let your light shine and like just be who you are and then like having that take it away, you're like, oh, I mean, Beast is, yeah. Beast is depressed and then like, uh, and then being ridiculous about it. But uh, you know, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Light turns back on. Yeah. And then Cyclops is in, what is it called? An Octoray Force. Yeah, he's, he's Octoray Force back to normal. So he's in what looks like a scuba helmet. <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure what it's doing for him, but apparently it's doing something. Does Cyclops charge up with like solar energy? Yeah. Something like that. Maybe it's just like refocusing his. Because he used, he used his powers a whole bunch. He like. Made like yeah. a foot chasm in the ground with an optic glass last issue. Uh, yeah. I will just be a little thirsty and say Angel could wear only that harness and do very well in any gay club. He would uh, he would do just fine wings or not. So as we delve in, <laughs> as we delve in, uh, the the X Men are very happily getting back to normal. Beast drops his crutches. Angel's out of his harness. Everybody's. Uh, exercising. We get a call back to their adventure with uh, Kesar a few issues back. Uh, uh, and they're just, uh, they're having a good time. Although Iceman does not want to get out of his ice bath until they learn of the pending vacation. Uh, I want to note the X-Men have graduated at this point. Like Professor X left and Cyclops is in charge, but it kind of just seems like they have reverted back to being his little flunkies again. So what else do we do? You know, we're, we're school children right. at this school. If we've graduated, well, I've got another course of study for you to go through and I need you to hang around and help me. In the, in the early Stan and Jack stuff, the characters seemed to undergo change at the beginning. Uh, Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman got married and had a baby. Spider-Man graduated high school very quickly, but then it like, hurried up to like slow everything way down like the sliding continuity took over and we're like let's keep these characters status quo for years at a time uh, but there were lots of early changes which is an interesting thing um as we get in we have uh beast he gets off his crutches uh and says eureka next to the gettysburg address that was the most inspiring declaration i've ever heard uh, we've been commenting over and over on how much fun it is to have fun Beast back in these old comics because he's so awful. Oh, I, I don't know. Are you guys Beast fans? No. No. <laughs> That's a big strong, strong disagree. <laughs> that was I'm, such a quick answer. <laughs> I am I am a dark Beast fan because that is a character that understands he's terrible and embraces it. Okay. Uh, Heather, Dark Beast is a an evil version of Beast from another universe who's like a supervillain. And our Beast has basically become him in the current comics. Okay. But denies it. Yeah, yeah. He like Sorry. pretends it's all for the greater good, but really, oof, yeah, it's a lot. Uh, so when we, when we go down to the bottom, um, Professor X warns Iceman if he stays in his bath too long, he's going to reach his frigid peak pretty soon. I'm pretty sure that I have hit my frigid peak at least a few times in my life. Uh, I will likely get there again. Uh, so we shift gears to uh, to Dr. Bolivar. Bolivar? Do you guys say it Bolivar? Yeah, Bolivar. Bolivar. Bolivar? Bolivar? Uh, I say Bolivar. 
I'm trying to remember back because he was in the Days yes. of Future Past. I think they say Bolivar. Bolivar, I think. Yeah. Peter Peter Dinklage played him, right? right? Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm going to say Bolivar. You guys can pronounce it differently. But so Dr. Bolivar Trask, who is a renowned anthropologist uh, who is making himself known for uh, his opinions about mutants. What are those opinions? That they're going to enslave the human race because they're all Magneto, apparently. Yes. And they're hiding it. Yeah. They're, they're plotting in the secrets of the dark corners of the world. We've been we're busy worried to, about all these other things. We're not going to know their schemes and plots until it's too late. Yeah. So I'm thinking, uh, I try to make this real at least once in a while. I'm thinking this is like a very early version of Fox News. Not that this stuff didn't exist back then. I mean, this is like the Watergate era. Like yeah. messages get very politicized and very pushed. This is the civil rights era. Uh, the Black Panthers are happening. Uh, Say again, Heather. I said the Red Scare. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the Cold War, the Red Scare, all these different things are like being weaponized. Or we bring it up to like modern day and we have, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood. And like you hear the name and immediately have an emotional reaction or, you know, Confederate flags or anti-vaxxers. So this is like a, like an early version of... of, of uh, I say early, a current 60s version of like political messaging really being branded well. And it's it's a really interesting thing to consider. Uh, what reactions did you guys have to seeing this, the mutant menace plastered all over the, the headlines? Well, when I saw mutant menace, I was like, did J. Jonah Jameson write this headline? Because that's go-to word. Oh, those mutants are a menace. But also, I mean, it's terrible because of how quickly the the anti-mutant sentiment skyrockets throughout this issue and everybody's like, whoa, 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 whoa. But at the same time, that's the stuff that is at the core, at the heart of a lot of this story going forward is that we fear and hate the mutants. We cannot trust them and their intentions. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was like, okay, y'all are going like straight, like one, one of them just like runs out and it's like, this is gonna go immediately on the front page. Like as a journalist, like, aren't you supposed to find out like, what the other points of view are and like fact check and all that stuff before you just blast it all over the papers. But you're just taking like the word of this one man and just running with it and like going he's, crazy. He's not just one man. He's a renowned anthropologist. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, so it, dabbles in robotics. <laughs> well, and this is an era coming out of McCarthyism as an example. Mm -hmm. Again, Heather brought up the Red Scare. Like you take these words or images and it becomes this cycle where groups polarize around these thoughts. Reason is gone. Uh, fake news journalism kicks in and we just kind of roll with it. Uh, and again, we're seeing this play out again and again. It's one of the most frustrating things about human society in my opinion, because we yeah. see these camps that form uh, over and over again in our history, including now, for God's sake, it's, it's everywhere. Um, it starts yeah. that mob mentality. And so everyone gets on board, even if, if you were to get them by themselves and like have an actual discussion, they would not feel that strongly about it. But as soon as the mob mentality kicks in, it's like, oh, no, this is. Yeah. Yeah. Just know it, it the group think, you know, yeah, some, someone says something like, oh, yeah, no, that's right. Even if it's not researched or backed or anything, it's just you get caught up in the hysteria of it and then it mm -hmm. grows and grows. Or you just don't want to oppose like the masses right. like you're afraid of what happens if you do that so you just go along with it 
yeah, there's consequences, as we're going to see with Professor X in this issue, when you when you give a voice against and it's not popular to do so, although history shows that we tend to respect or be kind toward those that did stand up and unkind yeah. toward those who just went with the flow, right? Yeah. Uh, that phrase, you're on the wrong side of history applies here. Now, up until now, and we're going to come back to Professor X, who I actually like in this issue. Uh, rarely does that take place. Uh, <laughs> But uh, his his better side comes out here. But uh, Professor X, up until now in the comics, his his dream we we latch onto Xavier's dream a lot has basically been I need to train good mutants to stand against evil mutants, but also I need to acquire as much power on my side as possible. That's kind of his been his stated goals. But it shifts here. How does Xavier's dream shift in this issue? Because it turns into more like we should be living in harmony. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even than, like, educate the public about who we yeah. are and what we stand yeah. for. It, the, the PR stance or just the, the person putting himself out there to be the respected, educated person that is challenging the beliefs that are just out there. Hey, no, we should not fear these people. They're just like us. Anyone could be born a mutant and actually citing the facts. And he also says something, I think it's to Beast, about oh, like yeah. how we are not, like mutants are not better than regular humans. Like exactly. we're just different. And so it's it's nice to see that kind of being done like publicly, like on the front of like, we're all the same, treat us as equals, like humans to mutants, but then mutants to humans, it's the same thing. Like he's still pushing the same message instead of being like in the darkness, like Trask is saying, be like, secretly we're better, but we're going to tell people we're even, and then we're going to be better in the dark shadows. So when when Stanley wrote Spider-Man, it was kind of for the nerdy kids at school. Spider-Man's the science nerd who gets superpowers, right? He's he's appealing to audiences that don't normally get voice, and Stanley's great at that. But in this, I don't know how much he meant it to or not, but he starts to give a voice or an understanding or a community for people who are disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. It's this ethos that we're talking about that, that LGBT people latch onto and other subgroups of, oh my God, I know what it's like to not be understood. We can compare, and we'll get into this more a little later, but we can compare this news conference that takes place between Bolivar Trask and Charles Xavier to like news footage from like the AIDS crisis. When you see people like AIDS is terrible and gay people are awful. And and he's like, actually, let me educate you because gay people come from all over and they are not evil. And then they're ready to attack him for even standing Mm -hmm. up against the rhetoric. So it's a, I I feel like, again, this is kind of where the ethos changes. Xavier's dream, however, is always been kind of stated to peacefully coexist in a world that hates and fears us, where Magneto is more like, fuck that noise, we're gonna create our own world and live on our terms. I'm in charge. <laughs> and what we're seeing in the Krakoa era is kind of a, a, a an amalgamation of those yeah. things. It's, uh, it's mutant pride at its finest. Uh, yeah. So again, it kind of stands out here. Uh, any thoughts on that before we keep going? Well, just to that point of the Krakoan age being a blend of their two perspectives, because not that not that Xavier is an extremist on his side, but in comparison to Magneto, they are opposite poles mm-hmm. of this one viewpoint. You know, it's it's gotta only be us. And Xavier's like, no, it can be everybody. And even Bolivar on the other side, well, no, it's gotta be us or we're going to die. And yeah. how to see Xavier and Magneto kind of temper each other out to find this middle way between the two of them. I also think there's just a really interesting kind of 
you know, Bolivar's like, we have to stop the mutants because they're planning the destruction of our species in the shadows. But like, really, he's been planning the destruction of their species in the shadows. Like, Mm -hmm. he's calling them out for doing something he assumes they're doing because he's doing it. But he Mm -hmm. has no, like, he's just afraid. He just doesn't have any proof. But I just found that like really interesting that the way like as his program is revealed, you're like, oh, but you've been doing this the whole time. And it's not the mutants, it's you. So I'm going to have a lot to say on Bolivar in a minute. But yes, and there's <laughs> so much hypocrisy in his viewpoint. So we're going to yes. come back to him in just a second. The uh, the idea of all of this, though, like it, it hits you a little bit. I, uh, I think it's I think it's really, really brilliant. Uh, So let's jump into page four. We have the X-Men preparing to go on vacation. And in the first three panels, we have this really, really beautiful but sad scene of Iceman, who is closeted gay, strapping down Angel's wings all the way down his back onto his legs. And Angel is a closeted mutant. And there's this really interesting kind of uh, discussion about their need to hide in plain sight. This view of Bobby kind of affectionately tucking Angel's wing in and saying, if you ask me, nobody would care even if they found out about us. And we know now Bobby was totally crushing on Angel back then. And it just like breaks my little gay heart to see him like gently try to flirt, but Angel's talking about something completely different. Uh, What are your thoughts about these two being closeted in different ways? Well, I think it's interesting, right? Like. The idea, it, it takes me back to like what I was talking about before with what Bolivar's saying about them doing certain things to hide who they are. And, you know, he phrases it in that they're doing these things to hide who they are because they are gearing up to hurt these other people. But really, they're hiding who they are to protect themselves from these other people. And I just think it's like an interesting, you know, perspective of just how much effort it takes to be something that you're not versus like how freeing it is to just be something that you are. Mm-hmm. But because there's just these parameters around what you would be perceived as and not knowing how it's going to be accepted that you put in all this extra effort. Like the fact that Angel has this process and that he did it this whole time while he was in the military and that he left because he couldn't go through a physical, like all of those things of just like how much putting yourself in a box just diminishes your ability to live your life to the fullest is just really, it's like very clearly laid out in just like three panels. So, so especially with Angel being the freedom of flight as that kind of furthering the metaphor of how calmly, how regular, how normalized this process of just binding down and hiding. I, I titled this whole path, uh, this whole page, human passing adjustments where each of these three people are, are doing these things so that they can pass in regular society, that they won't be seen for who they really are. That's well, and we have, we have specific, specific, specific <laughs> physical examples of, for example, transgender men who will uh, bind their breasts very tightly or tuck their genitals and use tape and binders and discomfort in order to try to blend in or be who they really are. But there's the larger context of not being able to let your light shine. And speaking as someone who has come out before, it sucks. It changes your relationship with your parents, your siblings, your family. Everyone has to redefine you. Uh, So this idea of like, we learn here that Warren has not told his parents that he has wings. Uh, Bobby's very clearly closeted. And uh, Justin, you just alluded, we move on to see Cyclops. Uh, sharing his fear that if he ever lets his his glasses fall, he's going to kill somebody. 
We see Beast Beast wrapping his feet really tight as he affectionately talks to his own toes, calling them sweeties. Uh, but but it's it's multiple panels of these these four young men needing to hide what makes them special in a lot of ways. It's very sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and just the the Cyclops panels, the weight of responsibility that he carries with this power, it, it really hits home. Just how he feels so alone and feels like the burden of all of the things that he could do with this. He needs to always be aware and always be responsible for it. And we don't know about the orphanage or his or his right. uh, upbringing at all or how he's lost his parents. But yeah, his character, uh, there's a lot of sadness and heaviness there. Heather, did you have any thoughts on these scenes before we move on? Uh, so I thought it was interesting because, I mean, we've made the comparison of Warren having to harness his wings um, to being a closeted queer person before. And so it's really interesting to me to have the actual queer person on the team helping him with this. And so that was very poignant to me. And yeah, Beast just made me laugh with his talking to his own toes <laughs> and saying that he could just walk on his hands, but it would be less glamorous. I uh, <laughs> I feel like Beast just has to keep talking at all times. Like if he ever slows down, like a crushing depression will just sink upon him. <laughs> so as long as he keeps himself real busy, <laughs> He can keep a smile on his face. He's so much these last few issues. Yeah. Uh, so we we have Cyclops kind of pining after Gene in his mind again. He's thinking about asking her out, but Angel does it first. Jean's looking adorable in her like little yellow summer dress. Uh, should she go with Angel or Scott? Neither. <laughs> Just be, go be Jean, right? Yeah. I feel like at this point in my notes, I'm like, okay, so all Jean has done in this issue is like take care of the men and be lusted and over. be lusted over like that's it and i was like oh okay like yeah also i thought they were going on vacation together that's just a side note so they're all just going on i did too vacations. until that point well and then warren drives warren drives away with gene but we later see him at his parents home by himself yeah. well, <laughs> maybe he maybe he told her to wait in the car no, he took her to the train station. That's what it says. Oh, okay, okay. Maybe she's off to see her parents. He says, how about me driving you to the train? Yeah. My, my initial reaction to this whole page was, Angel is such a knob. <laughs> Just get out of here, Angel. You're such a show-off. They're all, even from the first appearance, they're all just, hey, Gene, oh, Gene, hey, Gene. Calm and down, like, guys, except for Cyclops, who's just inside his heart. It's like, hey, Gene. Yeah. I mean, I feel like when I read this, the way that Jean asked Cyclops, like, aren't you also going to the train? Like, I feel like she wants to go with Cyclops, but it's like what um, we were talking about before with this idea of like, but Warren is the one who's pushing for it. So she feels like, well, I'm supposed to say yes to the one who's like more aggressively asking me not doing what I actually want to do. So I'm going to like try to slyly get you to offer to take me because I want to go with you. But you say like, oh no, my train's later. So then I'm like, okay, I guess I'll go with Warren. But I mean, they're 16 and she cannot yet read his mind to find out she likes him. So if you guys think back to like, hey, I'm going to sit over here and you hope that your crush notices and comes and sits by you. Both Jean and Scott are so afraid of making the first move. It's almost adorable. Uh, Bobby and Bobby and Hank reference being from New York here, but that's actually not true. Hank or uh, Beast is from Illinois, 
Yeah. Uh, Bobby's from a little town on Long Island, but I think they're just excited to go back to the Cafe Agogo, uh, which yeah. we'll get to in a minute. Uh, and we have Charles being so lonely. He's watching Scott move away saying, I'm the only one who can understand how, how lonely you feel. Oh. <laughs> yeah, just the both him, Charles recognizing Scott's loneliness and, and just feeling it in himself really made me feel for the two of them, but also like, oh man, you guys are depressing. <laughs> like, I, I get it because you're both so alone in your, your lives, but oh man, couldn't you just hang out together? Where's Scott even going? It is, uh, we, don't, we never learn actually, no. but it, yeah, it is, it is a, a palpable loneliness, but both of them are orphans too, yeah. which is something interesting to consider. So they have that in common. We know that at this point about Professor X, we do not know that about Scott yet, but I think they probably understand each other in a particular way. Yeah. Uh, okay, so things really go crazy on the next page. Using Professor X's words uh, from the bottom panel, he says, the wheels of persecution have now been set in motion. Uh, we see these really uh, poignant articles appear in the newspaper about the mutant menace, about how mutants are gonna rise up as overlords and enslave humanity. It's almost recent reminiscent of like World War II propaganda against Jews. Uh, for the long-term fans of the X-Men, we see these images later revisited in Quentin Quire's origin. Uh, if you guys remember when Choir later in New X-Men sets up his revolt, he, he says that he says in the comics he was born on this day uh, when this newspaper came out. But he references this as like being very impactful to his own journey. What were your re reactions to this uh, propaganda? I got lost in these artists' interpretations. The fact that, A, they're just interpretations of what could happen. I were reading it on Marvel Unlimited and I just kept on zooming in to see the the ridiculousness that this this ran without any backing so no it's an opinion piece plus some artist interpretation to just create all this fear about what could be of this unknown group yeah definitely the the way that like these images and like i don't know the images kind of felt like biblical to me mm -hmm. like really like we're going to take this thing that you know and we're going to shove it in your face so you get you know you are so afraid but there's this isn't an actual photograph of anything so it's very propaganda like yeah. it's just flat out this is propaganda this is what we're doing and and the kind of the projection of well obviously they would try to take us over and and subjugate us because that's what we would have done slash exactly. did historically right. you know because clearly that's what they're gonna do because secretly in our hearts that's what we would that's do that's what we, we want to do to them right i noted that they want to do to us what we did to the native americans and the african americans right. in our country which is well even the hispanic americans and the asian americans i mean at different times in history we we yeah. we are we're, they're gonna do to us what we've done to everyone else you should be afraid it's uh it's so hypocritical and painful heather did you have thoughts here uh very similar thoughts. It's very propaganda. It's very fear mongering. Mm. And so again, it kind of reminds me of things like the Red Scare, because it's like your neighbor could be a mutant and this is what that means for you. So be very scared and out them as a mutant, kind of like they did with this is what happens with in, when your neighbor is a communist yeah. type of thing. And so, yeah, very fear mongering. 
during, uh, and I will make no, no uh, effort to hide that I'm a, a social justice oriented Democrat, not to polarize our audience at all, because I will listen to all sides. But I remember, uh, particularly the year leading up to Trump's election, like being obsessed with the news, like every couple of hours, or maybe even more, I would click on the new headlines and like, have lots of feelings. And frankly, CNN on one side and Fox News on the other, there's all these giant headlines popping out trying to get huge emotional reactions out of people. And I was so stressed out all of the time. And then during that whole four years of Trump, I felt like that same thing. It was just an inundation to the point where I had to stop because it was causing me like so much distress. Back then it was just newspapers, but you see these headlines pop up and then you hear talking points and suddenly Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson on both sides of things are just like spewing all of their thoughts from their own camps. And it, it's, you see people polarizing behind it. Our, our relationship with the media uh, is, is huge. And I, I think it's really brilliant they brought that into this issue. Yeah, yeah. And just how and quickly that... it mobilizes people. Yeah. And then in that last panel on that page, Charles looks a little bit like a ghoul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. His face is melting off there. Yeah. Which reminded me in two ways. So we had read God Loves, Man Kills and just how he decides to, or, or they he calls up the TV and he's like, hey, I need to get on TV and have a debate. And they're like, oh yes, you're Charles Xavier, of course. And exactly. even just the idea that he looks like a ghoul, like like kind of a, a sickly, frail person that is very referenced in the God Loves Man Kills debate between him and Stryker, that no matter what he's saying, Stryker is moving forward in his propaganda, in his pitch. Just interesting parallels of, A, the fact that you can just call up the TV station, like, I want to debate. Well, I don't care what he's doing. Tomorrow we're debating. Uh, you guys can find both of these on YouTube, but I, I used to teach a class on propaganda. There's a clip about communism that they used to play in the 50s. It's just like a little commercial you can watch. And it basically is like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make some stuff up, but like, if you see someone wearing red socks, they might be a communist. If there's a woman sitting at a cafe reading a newspaper by herself, she might be a communist. Call us at this number. I mean, it's like, it's really scary. Yeah. There's another one they used to play in schools that's like, if you see a man standing in a park by himself, he's probably a homosexual and he's trying to lure your children into the back of his car so he can turn them into homosexuals. I mean, this feels like that type of propaganda. It's just like, <laughs> like it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. And I like the, the second page of images like this. No, is it the first page? Yeah, when there's like one of them like on a chair being carried of like, is that Charles? Is that a caricature of Charles like <laughs> running things right now in his little chair being carried by humans? It looks like Namor. It does look like Namor. Maybe it's mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's like a, a picture from Charles's diary. It's the way he sees himself. Because <laughs> he has the means to carry him around all the time. Yes. No, so Professor X uh, in this issue is actually a hero, I think, in a lot of ways. He steps out of the shadows. He calls the news station. He recognizes this is really scary. So he puts himself on national news to have a debate with Bolivar Trask. Uh, so let's take a sidestep with Bolivar Trask for just a minute. He is a character that appears in this and the next few issues. But there has been a tremendous amount added to his backstory based on other comics, some of them that you wouldn't expect to be related to the X-Men. Uh, you can jump online and find kind of a biography of him. There, he, he features in a, a series called Conspiracy. There's, there's just kind of some interesting spaces that he shows up, but 
we learn that he has uh, a pretty extensive backstory of uh, contacts within the government. The Sentinel program is something he's been thinking of and designing for a long time for one primary reason. Does anybody know? This is a spoiler for, for a few years in the future in the X-Men comics, but does anybody know his real motivation for designing the Sentinels? No. Bolivar Trask has two mutant children one of whom has disappeared into the time stream because she's a time traveler, and one of whom is a precog who can see into the future. And we're gonna see the precog uh, later down in this original run, but there's an image here of like the, the youth pastor who has a gay kid or who is gay himself, and suddenly he's like, I'm gonna teach you how to cure your gay. Like, we're gonna make this different now, right? He's ashamed of his own bloodline or his own potential. So there's like psychology of these kids are going to rise up and replace me. So I have to stop them. Uh, reactions to hearing that. Oh. I feel like this is not a very like a deep reaction. It just feels like it tracks. Like that seems pretty in line with history. You know, it's like you have this fear of being you have this thing in your family that is perceived by other people as a negative. So instead of trying to figure out a way to resolve that, you go the complete opposite. So you save face by saying, well, it's not my fault that my child is this way. Some Something outside of like some other force made this happen. And so I'm going to like band together with everybody to destroy it because I need to save my own face and say this is I don't I'm not okay with this this is happening but I didn't have anything to do with it and yeah. I just feel like it seems like it tracks yeah yeah and it seems like it's informed by other iterations of this type of activity it's well and God loves men kills uh which Heather that's a, a really famous graphic novel uh maybe the most famous x-men story of all time okay maybe uh, but we have kind of the similar thing with William Stryker, who is mm -hmm. forming a religion against mutants because he has a mutant son that he's ashamed of. Uh, and and he does monstrous things to himself later on to just kind of hold to his point. It's a, uh, uh, which movie was that in? Was that United They Stand? Uh, the second one, so X2. I, yeah, I think it's called United They Stand. Anyway, he, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's the feature villain in that one. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting thing. Uh, okay, so as we get into this debate, we see Professor X, and I'm going to read some of his words out loud here, uh, giving a speech that's pro-mutant. He says, before giving way to groundless fears, we must first consider what is a mutant. He's not a monster. He's not necessarily a menace. He's merely a person who was born with different power or ability than the average human. No one knows what causes mutations. Your own children may be mutants. You must not let ignorance, rumor, or unreasoning fear stampede you. And uh, Jack, Jack and Stan do an amazing thing here where they're showing his image, giving this speech on televisions, while they're also showing people uh, or civilians react mm -hmm. to his speech. What types of reactions do we see here that stood out to you guys? Uh, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about, or my, none of my children are mutants. Yeah, just just sheer refusal of anything that he's saying, and and also just the the fact that is he a mutant? You know, who right. who is this guy that's standing up for this cause of other? Obviously, he must be of that other. Well, I think it's 
two things. One, I think it's interesting of like the generational differences that you're seeing in the reactions. Like the parents are very much like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. My children are not mutants. And then like one of the children is like, wouldn't it be groovy if he was a mutant? Like they perceive mutants differently. And then it really like, while we were talking earlier about the ideas, uh, the propaganda kind of standpoint of like, if this, if you see this person doing this, they're a mutant. I feel like what Charles said here, although it had the intention of trying to say like mutants could be anybody, it kind of created like a fear in a way of saying like mutants could be anybody. They could be anywhere. They could be your kids. They could be your neighbors and you don't know it. And so like, that's where there's this difference of like the parents are reacting in that way of like, no, no, never my family couldn't be me. You don't know what you're talking about. And the kids are like, oh, I could possibly be a mutant. That's cool. Or to bring this up to the modern era, hey, everybody, look, we just terraformed Mars. You should be our friend now. Mm -hmm. It may not work, Uh, but yeah, just in a course of three panels, he, it's like, what is he hiding? He's ignorant. Oh, I bet he's a communist. Uh, Maybe he's a mutant himself. He's a right winger. And then Bolivar Trask says out loud, what is the ulterior motive? Why are you standing up for mutants? And frankly, this makes me so fucking crazy because I feel like anytime I turn on news or particularly political shit, it's the same stuff. Someone makes a point and it's, oh, what are you trying to hide then? And this right. goes, because you believe differently than me, you must be corrupt. And all I have to do is ask that question. And that's as far as I have to go. I don't have to prove anything. I just right. gotta, I just gotta introduce enough doubt into people's minds. Right. Ooh, it's stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just question you enough so that people are like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why that's is a good that? question. Trask immediately kind of- just oh sorry, Heather, go ahead. Oh, I just said it's kind of like a red herring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is uh, one of the propaganda tools. Uh, 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 Trask immediately reveals like, okay, everybody, he is eager to push this button. He's like, I have contained this. Let's pretend Professor X is a mutant and watch what I can do. And he pushes a button and in comes the cutest little pack of Oompa Loompas you ever did see. In the- <laughs> they're not Oompa Loompas, they're huge. Oompa Loompas are tiny. Huge gas station floaty men, but with their arms down. They're, uh, what are your thoughts about the Sentinels design here? Oh, I love it. I just, <laughs> they're so ridiculous, but amazing. And the thing that, the thing that was really sticking out to me was he had to tell people at the studio that he was gonna like did he sneak these robots these giant massive robots that he built in through the back door with no one seeing it yeah if you if you notice the the host of the shows immediately like i hope all the viewers recognize that they're seeing a sensational television first through the courtesy of our sponsor like he was ready for this he's immediately ready to plug it uh i'm thinking as trask designed these he's like they're like 10 feet tall but let's make them friendly. Purple tights and like, <laughs> and like a helmet is gonna make people like them. He yeah. put some thought into this design. They kind of remind me of like um, a kid, like peewee football, you know, like their gear is too big for them. They have a giant helmet <laughs> and they're sort of like fumbling around. They're ready to topple over at any moment. Uh, but it's, it's an iconic design though, frankly, it's, it's kind yeah. of amazing. Yeah. A lot of people's very first exposure to uh, X-Men villains is like the 90s cartoon, right? And the first thing they face is the Sentinels. It's like, a, it's, it's, it's a really, I mean, they're not blasting their way into a mall here, but, uh, but it's almost the same thing. 
the Sentinels immediately turn on Bolivar Trask. They have developed sentience and they are pushing their way in to protect humanity by bringing themselves up to rule humanity. It's every Isaac Asimov like robot story brought to life all at the same time. What are your thoughts uh, as the, on the Sentinels as villains in this issue? Uh, I, I just, I love the Sentinels as villains because of how terrible they are. Or just the idea that they represent the fear of humanity gotten away from them. And especially what they evolve into later on down the line and into this, especially when you see in Days of Future Past where it's like, well, mutants come from humans. So everyone should be destroyed and captured. And uh, just, I, it, it is the, they are really the true villain of mutants. Mm -hmm. I mean, like they don't have their program. They have a specific programming. And like the thing that I think that Bolivar doesn't realize is like he programmed them almost too well. Like they get away from him. They start taking, they're like, no, no, you're not in control of us. You gave us this responsibility and they have no ability to reason any other way. So they just have this, drive to complete their mission and they need to complete their mission in any way possible and like what you guys were saying about them like taking over and like ruling I feel like deep down inside like that's what Bolivar wants he wants to be the one who's in charge so he created these things thinking they're gonna help me to be in charge and now it's backfiring on him like immediately Professor X immediately thinks like, oh no, because he's an anthropologist, he didn't know how to design their brains properly. He failed, which is amazing. It's like, how? But also, why does he even think he can control a robot's brain? Like, why is that even a thought that crosses through his mind? Uh, giant man, Hank Pym is another character who, uh, although he's like a geneticist or, or, or a biologist, He's like, I'll create a robot. And then it turns into Ultron. Yeah. The moral of the story is don't create robots unless you know what you're doing. Just stay in your lane. Just stay in your science lane and <laughs> won't have evil things take over and kill everyone. But I do think, uh, I do think these are the ultimate X-Men villain in some ways. Apocalypse, mm -hmm. Mystique, Magneto, Sabretooth. They have histories and moral codes. Like these guys are just like kill mutants, like yeah. contain and kill at all costs. And they're, they're scary. Yeah. And, and to your point about the animated series, we talked to Julia and Eric Lewald, who were involved in the creation and development of the series, and they talked about just how great it was to have a villain that you could actually tear into and, and destroy and not have the fear of, it is a kid's show, you know, you can't have Wolverine tear into another person, but with the personification of this robot that kind of doesn't look anything like a human at all, just the fact that they have two legs and two arms, uh, you can just shred through them. Yeah, when your main hero is a guy with claws, but also you can't use them on anyone except for right. robots. That's a, that's complicated. Okay, so we jump back to, Heather, it's your favorite place. We're back to the Cafe Agogo, only for three panels, but we're there. Uh, tell us what you enjoyed in this little uh, three panel scene. So one of my favorite, so I loved how, first of all, Hank says, Bernard, the poet, has me worried. I'm beginning to understand what he's saying. That cracks me up, first of all. And then I also love the chick who's dancing next to Bernard as he's reciting his poetry. And she says, say it again, Bernard. Those tender sentiments do wonders for my libido. 
And the then the guy in the back, cool it, chick, you're melting my bongos. <laughs> I was dying a little bit. It's funny. <laughs> uh, J- Justin and Alicia, if you weren't aware, Bernard the Poet is a mutant, actually. Uh, oh. Very obscure. We only see him a little bit, but he he's uh, among my favorite X-Men nerdy kind of side characters. Uh, we also get the return of Zelda Kurtzberg, the cute little blonde waitress who is Iceman's beard. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you guys know the term beard in gay culture? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he's like, hey, you want to you want to go out later? Actually, never mind. I got to run. Like, <laughs> really. She's so mad. Like, so mad. <laughs> How dare you even tempt me with that idea? And then you took it away so quickly. He's like, phew, I don't have to go out with a girl. I almost <laughs> had to. <laughs> Saved by the mental summons of Professor Xavier. But uh, Hank, you heard me. You heard me ask her out, though, right? You heard it. Look how sweet I am. Here I am. Uh, then we get them changing. Uh, the banter between Beast and Iceman is adorable. Uh, we get to see this in the X Men later in the Champions and X Factor and the Defenders. Like these two are a really good time generally uh, when they when they are together. I really enjoy them. Uh, As a side note, like I really just loved that they took the time to make like they need to change into their costumes. They don't just appear. And I was, I appreciated that. It's like, yeah, you you need to change. I just just said the champions, that was wrong. Angels on the champions with Iceman, but Beast is in the others. Uh, And then we get to see Angel at home. He is with his mom and dad. So we've only met Jean's parents so far here and then Charles's parents. But here we have uh, Mr. Warren Worthington Jr. and Mrs. Catherine Worthington. Uh, So I'll take- Oh, and the butler, yes, yes, uh, Curtis the butler. Uh, I'll take a brief kind of sidestep into continuity here. There is not a lot known about Warren's parents. They're usually only used in the very old comics and they're kind of obscure. You see their origins in like the Kazar series and like uh, just places you wouldn't expect. But uh, we we learn if you tie all the facts together. So. Uh, Warren's father is listed as the fifth richest man in America at one point. He has Worthington Industries, which Warren now runs, and which has also been run by Anole in the comics, I'm thinking, if I'm remembering right. But Worthington Industries has diversified money, old American money, in uh, aviation technology. They own some newspapers. They've got some alternative fuels and bizarrely like frozen yogurt shops. I think that's what we know about their business. Uh, but they're very, very bougie. Uh, Warren's father has a brother who is an obscure supervillain called the Dazzler, not the X-Men member. Uh, Warren is an orphan now. His parents will both die. We will see them more. Uh, so he becomes the heir to this multi-multi-billion dollar uh, industry. But we kind of get this image of him at home for a few minutes. What did you think about this scene as we learn a little bit more about Angel's home life? I thought it was really cute how supportive they are because they're like the junior league has planned a number of parties in your honor and I hope you'll be able to spend some time with us and then when he's like actually I have to leave and they're like and he goes you're old enough to know what you're doing if we can be of any help and so it's just it's it's kind of precious because they're like oh we're so excited to have our son home oh he's leaving immediately he knows what he's doing but we're here if you need us son and it's just cute yeah yeah and it's great in contrast to the beginning of the issue when he was talking about having to keep his secret of his humanity, of his, of his wings from his parents and just how loving and supporting they seem to be of him regardless. You know, you, you, we love having you here. Everybody in the community is excited to have you here. 
please just hang out with us. We're your family. We love you. And you know best. So if you got to go, you got to go. I am going to just like go a completely different route from all y'all. Um, two things, actually. One is just like I at the beginning, I got very much like uh, the Gilmore's vibe, like Richard Gilmore, like we're coming and this is our dinner and we're eating proper meal and like all the parties and all of that. But I also felt like the reason they're so understanding is because he he has this like status in the community and so it's just expected that a man of that status can't actually spend time with his family and he needs to leave so like their understanding of it like because of that cultural structure and but like deep down inside they really like his mom really wants him to stay but she's like i understand yes okay you're the man of a man of business in the in the comics prior to this we see angel as a, a decent fighter a hard worker but kind of as a playboy, he drives his little fancy cars around. But I feel like this two panels and then those images of him binding his back earlier tell us almost more about his psychology and his character than anything uh, prior to this. I am an Angel fan. I think he's a good character. Uh, but I feel like writers so often want to find ways to power him up more rather than just delving into what makes him great as a character. And we see a lot of that in this issue, uh, including in a few more pages. Uh, so we, we jump back to the newsroom, the Sentinels who are sentient and under the control of something called the Master Mold, which we will not see until next issue. Uh, they've taken Bolivar Trask captive. Professor X is keeping the crowd calm with his telepathy while calling the X-Men for help. Uh, one of the civilians tries to run and Professor X narrowly saves him by mentally commanding him to throw himself on the ground. Uh, kind of impressive with Professor X here, kind of using his powers in a nice way instead of a shitty way. Uh, yeah. yeah oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. This mental tranquility, you know, tranquilizing them is interesting. And it, I, I love that he's doing it to help them, to keep them calm, but also to later on hide his secret and, and the X-Men's secret. And, and, you know, how often does he use this? No, he's, he's good here. He's good here. But where else could we he so frequently hides behind, if you want to call it hides behind, or is protected by his teen hero, right. you know, or he has a bunch of technology at the mansion he uses to amplify his powers. But like here, he's caught off guard. He was not expecting an attack by, uh, by evil robots by any means. Um, so summing up a little all at once, Beast and Iceman rush in. They start battling the Sentinels. Uh, Iceman gets wounded right away. Uh, and we see kind of all the X-Men in combat with the Sentinels as we move forward. And they're a formidable threat. It's, uh, it's a lot for them to face. Uh, if we skip ahead a few pages, we see uh, a group of Sentinels attacking Angel in the sky. Uh, there's like a bunch of uh, flamethrowers being shot at him all at the same time. Uh, they're, they're, uh, it, it's an impressive, uh, an impressive threat against the X-Men. So taking a continuity deep dive, which is something I love to do in our podcast, the Sentinels come back in so many forms over the next following years. Like here's a couple of examples. We have three-faced Sentinels called the Tri-Sentinels who fight them. We have Sentinels who are designed to emulate and look like the X-Men. We have a group called Sentinel Squad One, which are humans inside of Sentinels piloting them as a military unit who are sometimes like posed to guard the X-Men and sometimes to fight them. Uh, we have Project Wide Awake, which is a mutant founded government project where they send Sentinels out to contain mutants. 
Uh, we have Onslaught, which is Professor X's dark side, programming like dark sentinels to follow him. We've got Cassandra Nova who programs wild sentinels and they build this massive giant thing that wipes out literally genocides like 16 million mutants in one space. We have nano sentinels who can get into your bloodstream. Uh, we have Operation Zero Tolerance run by Bastion who is a master mold Nimrod hybrid. That's a whole nother story. Uh, but he creates prime sentinels which uploads technology into humans and they're like a biotech version of Sentinels. Uh, we even have a series, which is really cute if you haven't read it, called Sentinel, where a kid named Justin Seifert uh, finds a Sentinel and reprograms it to be his friend, and it's kind of their misadventures. So the Sentinels come back in a lot of different forms over the years. Uh, any thoughts or, or questions? What's your favorite Sentinel for those that have read the comics? Oh, well, your favorite is year 1000 or year 100 sassy nimrod that is just a lot of fun because yes. of how deadly and, and vicious he I is i love him i love nimrod <laughs> ah. but but as far as like my favorite like i love you nimrod and then but the cassandra nova storyline and what happens with those sentinels like that's a story that's like that's a juicy story yeah yeah, the concept of wild sentinels, I feel like, is probably one of my favorites to just be able to build and mold out of any kind of spare parts and, and create just with this base programming of destruction, uh, just as a sci-fi threat, that was one of it. And then the mother mold in terms of what's mm -hmm. the fearfulness of what's to come. I feel like the mother mold is, is intense. Uh, if I have to choose a favorite, uh, and you heard the affection in my voice, it's the series Sentinel, which again is about this boy and his robot. If you've never read it, you should sometime. It's really cute. It's a, almost an anime version of like, what's that like Iron Giant? Do you guys remember oh, that? Yeah, yeah. It's almost that. Like, here's my only friend, this giant robot who wants to kill mutants. But it's uh, it's, it's actually a really sweet series. I really like it a lot. Uh, okay, so we see Cyclops rushing to the rushing to the news station. Uh, he accidentally drops his sunglasses in the cab and like optic blasts his way through the roof like what the hell what yeah. happened man I, for someone to have belabored how much responsibility he carries and earlier on how did you how did you let that happen like right? you, you would have the the karogi the the little thing on the back of your sunglasses keeping Tight. it to the to the back of your head if you knew that you could just shoot through things like that uh, the, the, uh, I mean, if we're comparing powers to queerness again, when I was a teenager, it was like, pretend you're straight, pretend you're straight, pretend you're straight. And if I ever let my guard down and someone noticed I might be gay, there was this like immediate fear of like, oh no, 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 I'm straight. I promise. But here like Cyclops lets his guard down and suddenly there's a mob chasing him down the street. <laughs> like, yeah. It's really scary. It's a hard thing to consider back then. Uh, Okay, so let's jump back into the fight. They are fighting the Sentinels until one of them finally keels over and uh, Professor X is able to telepathically interface with this machine. But how only barely. That, how do you think that happens? What's, uh, what's your theory? Something to do with like the similarities of like AI technologies, like ability to learn, you know, like that human quality of its programming is something that he can tap into. Mm. Otherwise, I don't think it makes sense. 
maybe the because the robots have developed sentience maybe yeah. there's a way for him to interface there we've certainly seen a lot of examples of mm, that's not how telepathy works <laughs> but this is a new one he's like reading the mind of a machine which he specifically said he couldn't do at the beginning well, yeah. he says that he he even says how vague it is and so like i think it does have something to do with the sentience because they're still not human and so he still can't just get into their mind but they're just sentient enough that he's like i'm kind of getting some very vague images um we've forgotten all about jean gray because you know <laughs> i didn't who needs a girl i was waiting for us to get to her so i could talk about it <laughs> jean is on a, a train and she uses her telekinesis kind of impressively uh in a couple of new ways what does she do she saves warren first of all she <laughs> like she right outside that window and, and then pulling him out of the sky i feel like is something that to, to even say a couple panels later oh this mighty feat of her levitating out of the window no she just pulled a flying man out of the sky <laughs> and held him to a moving train to hide him from sentinels and then he just brings her right back down and he's like you're right pretty girl <laughs> okay uh, that's fine angel <laughs> justin not like in ever call your wife pretty girl in a derogatory oh. manner it will not oh. go well pretty lady <laughs> it wasn't quite as bad as in the last issue when Xavier kept calling her just girl. No, oh, Jesus. Do as you're told, girl. Yeah, it was. Uh, I can't. Yeah. Yeah, same. <laughs> uh, in the last issue, she lifts Juggernaut a couple times and he's like 2,000 pounds. Right. Well, I think the idea of lifting yourself or levitating is like a, a new way of using her powers that we haven't seen before. And frankly, she does it all the time in the future comics. She's just surrounded by like a big bubble of pink energy. Yeah, that's one of my favorite uses of telekinesis is just that's why it's one of my go to. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? It's telekinesis because I can move myself and fly. Mm -hmm. Levitation. Uh, Heather, what did you just say? Oh, you said that she was surrounded by a pink bubble at all times. And I said, like, Glinda the Good Witch? <laughs> I kind of. Except Jeans is pinker and more, like, amoeba-like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so the X-Men uh, are reassembled. They're at full fighting strength. And they rush in a car to the Sentinel factory. Uh, I don't know, a little, a little ways north. Uh, where the Sentinels are really letting uh, uh, Bolivar Trask have it. They are letting him know that he, they're only keeping him around until they can learn to self-replicate. Uh, uh, but uh, the X-Men pull into what seems to be kind of a calm, serene grove, but then suddenly it's like, weapons everywhere, like firing lasers. And that's how the issue ends. Uh, Kind of a big, big cliffhanger. Uh, Justin and Alicia, have you guys read ahead? Have you read past this and the original oh, run? Not recently, but yes, I had read the entire original run a long time ago. I know where it goes over the next couple of issues, and especially with the name drops of Master Mold throughout this issue. You know, to your point earlier about how this story represents a lot of the the change in the complexity of continuity and of evolving story. They have baked into this sentinel concept layers of oh no we can get more and more and become larger and greater as it does years from now down the line 
into bigger and bigger threats. Yeah, and it, it, it all begins here. Uh, we do need to note Beast's self-confidence. He, uh, he does note out loud at one point, uh, my vocabulary is exceeded only my, by agility and arm. Like, uh, he, uh, he loves himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's his favorite X-Men. So as we look at, uh, we're continued into X-Men 15. As we look at the cover next time, what are some of your initial thoughts? Uh, Xavier's constipated, clearly. <laughs> clearly. And oh. Beast is laid out on a gurney, basically. Yeah, we get the origin of the Beast hinted at, which we haven't seen yet. Yeah. Oh. And just the being surrounded by them all. Where's Jean? Way in the back. Yeah, she's, she's way. Uh, <laughs> there she is. Oh, I see her. Uh huh. There she is. It's her poodle ears again. Yeah. yeah, and these these sentinels are also dancing. They they've got like their their arms pumping up and down like the ones on the first cover. <laughs> yeah, this guy over the side. He's like, yeah, destroy the mutants. Jean's in this era where she wears like. <laughs> She wears like a cowl that has two hair holes and she like pulls the hair through the side. hair holes. It's not a good look for her. No. Uh, so if you guys were all to choose a favorite single moment from this comic and also who was your star player? So who, who was your favorite and what was your favorite moment? My star player was definitely Jean because she actually got to like use her powers this time even if it wasn't necessarily in the actual fight we actually we got to see her use her powers in some cool ways and she's obviously growing with her powers and we don't get to see that a lot so i did love that and my favorite moment was probably when they were in the cafe because that just cracks me up every single time the cafe is <laughs> A favorite. <laughs> Papa Heather, you're melting my bongos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my favorite character. Yeah, I'm going to say my favorite. I'm going to go with Jean also because, like, she needs that. She needs that recognition. Um, but I think for me, my favorite moment, it's not like one small moment. It's kind of like the uh downfall of the press conference overall because i just feel like it sheds so much light on like everyone's perceptions of what's going to happen in that moment and and how it goes differently than anyone planned for it to go um i feel like that that kind of gives like the driving force for the rest of the issue so that was sort of like the big moment for me yeah uh my first my first pick was iceman uh but then i think it's also xavier and just the fact that he's able, what? it's the fact that he's able to throw together this press conference and that he wants to do all this work. And, and he really holds his cool throughout this entire issue. And, you know, enjoy your one day vacation, kids, because <laughs> things are happening. I need your help. And Not even the, one day. Yeah, just, right. Know, a few hours. Drive somewhere and drive back. That's, That's it. Jean hadn't uh, even made it to her destination yet. Right, right. And I think my favorite moment, well, one of the reasons why I picked Iceman initially was the ice slide, but also the fact that he just keeps his booties, his little, his, his soft, what, where do they say? My soft little booties in my pockets. It only takes me seconds to get in the costume. And then when they go down the ice slide, 
that that was that made me laugh out loud well we'll still keep on falling just a lot faster yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's how we're gonna reach the ground well if the if the slide doesn't work we'll just crash it'll be fine uh my favorite in this issue and i do have strong feelings about professor x but i think this is him at his finest he's my star player here he's standing up he's doing a good job and he's not being a dick to anybody for like the first time in a while uh I have a lot of favorite moments here, actually. Iceman in his little ice bath, that scene between Angel and Iceman strapping the wings down. Uh, but I think my favorite is these images in the newspaper of like the mutant menace and like what that does to solidify where the X-Men stand in the wider Marvel universe and how they are different from every other hero. Uh, I think is uh, I think is really something special. Uh, so, hey, you guys, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Uh, uh, I think I know the answer to this already, but uh, for Alicia specifically, uh, Jean Grey or Madeline Pryor? <laughs> I choose Madeline Pryor. Okay. Oh. She doesn't, that poor girl. Well, okay. She doesn't so, get enough. So Alicia only knows the intro of Madeline Pryor. <laughs> Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I don't know, like, what she, what she know does. I don't know Inferno yet, so maybe I've changed my mind, but it, right yeah. now. But even even after the end of Inferno, it, it's really, it's, just, just it's like, sinister. <laughs> listen, she just gets, like, she just gets used, and then she gets thrown away when Jean comes back. That's it's how true. I feel, and that's not right. No. So, Heather, in the future, uh, Jean Grey appears to be dead. And during that time, Cyclops mm-hmm. marries Jean Grey's clone, Madeline Pryor, and has a baby. But when Jean Grey comes back, Cyclops leaves Madeline and goes back to Jean. There's more to the story, but it's a very complicated sure. time for the X-Men. It is Scott's <laughs> lowest point. <laughs> All right, you guys, uh, anything we can look forward to coming up on the XY podcast? I mean, uh, well, you know, most of the we're, we're talking about, we can, I can tell you, most of our episodes that aren't new comics are complete surprises to Alicia because yeah. I like to keep her in the dark. And so she can react to it in real time. But we are talking about the Demon Bear saga mm. with uh, a couple of friends. And, and we actually both read it. And yeah. we'll also be comparing it to the New Mutants movie, which, bleh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is yeah, a thing. Yeah. It's brilliant storytelling, though. Yeah, I, I, I look forward to uh, to listening. Thank you so much for being here. What a what a, an esteemed honor to have you here, uh, Heather. Thank you for being here again. And uh, where can people find you on social media if they would like to do so? Oh, you can find us all over the internet at the Ex Wife Podcast. That's the X W I F E Podcast, not E X as in former wife, but X as in X Men. Um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, thexypodcast.com, YouTube, all the things. There is a local bar here in Salt Lake City. I've never been, but it's called the Ex-Wives Club. <laughs> uh, like EX hyphen the Ex-Wives Club. It sounds like a fun place if you're an ex-wife. Uh, Heather, where can people find you if they'd like to? Um, so on Instagram and Twitter, my handle is the same. It's at Heather underscore Beth underscore my twitter is private but just shoot me a request and i'll most likely accept you <laughs> and you can find me uh through the podcast on on twitter at at graham p p for like podcast or on instagram just under graham Malkin lane uh we'll see you guys back here next time justin and alicia thank you so so much uh have a beautiful night everybody thank Thanks you bye bye bye